This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. When companies talk about innovation today, the conversation inevitably turns to disrupting an industry or journeying out to find the next great product we didn't know we needed. But Wharton professor David Robertson says that's not the only way to innovate. In his new book, The Power of Little Ideas, Robertson looks at how complementary innovations around a core product can produce big wins. David, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, your book starts out with the inspiration for this book in some ways actually came from a can of paint. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So uh, so I wrote the book about Lego. My, that was my previous book. Mm-hmm. And that was a story about a company that um, figured out that you didn't want to innovate inside the box, that that wasn't going to get them in anywhere. Um, and you didn't want to innovate outside the box because that almost um, put them out of business, but rather around the box, you know, complementary innovations around a, a core product. The brick for Lego um, was what really led them to their recent success. Well, I got my house painted a couple summers ago, and the the, the contractor I hired, uh, he put together a proposal. He helped me choose colors and and helped me decide what kind of paint and what kind of uh, what what things needed painting the most and how I'd manage on a limited budget. And he put together a proposal and he bid Sherwin Williams Paint. And I I looked in my favorite consumer ratings magazine, and and Sherwin-Williams paint is good, but it's twice as expensive as another paint that's equally good. And so I talked to him, and I said, well, can't we use this other paint? And he said, well, yes, we could, but it's going to raise your price. I I said, I don't don't understand. The other paint is half the price. And he said, yeah, but paint is only about 15% of the total cost of your project. You know, I have to think about all the supplies. I've got to line up the labor. You know, there's the overhead of running a company, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and he said, what Sherwin-Williams does is it really helps me through the entire process of of working with you, you know, from helping you choose the colors. There was a Sherwin-Williams color consultant to figuring out how how much paint, you know, for primer and for the paint itself, brushes, tarps, you know, all the other supplies. And then during the project, keeping supplied, I can return extra primer if I don't need it. If I run out of something, that Sherwin-Williams rep will be over at the site delivering what I need. And then at the end, you know, he helps me, I found out later, put together that next proposal because there's always a next proposal, as any homeowner knows. And I looked, and it turns out within a a five- or ten-minute drive of my house, there's more Sherwin-Williams stores than there are Starbucks. And that's because they realized who their customer is. It's not me. Uh, you know, I'm the end consumer, of course. I'm the one that has Sherwin-Williams paint on the house. But it's that small business, you know, that painting contractor. And Sherwin-Williams, like Lego, has realized that it's not so much about the product. Their, their brick is a can of paint. It's about those innovations around the product that make that product more valuable. And so I wanted to write a book for companies that wanted to try this approach to innovation. I don't argue that it's, you know, that there's one best way to innovate, but I think it's it seemed like a tool that every innovation leader should have in their tool belt. And it seems like the conversation about how to innovate or what type of innovation to use isn't one that we always have when we talk about innovation or isn't one that companies always have. I mean, what would you say from the company standpoint? I mean, what isn't being discussed when companies think about innovation or how they should strategize toward 
an, innov- an innovation. Yeah. Too often I do a lot of corporate speaking. I do consulting. And I have, of course, a radio show on the Wharton Business Radio Network. And I'll put in a plug, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Channel 111. Um, and replayed throughout the week. And it's also a podcast. Look for it on iTunes. Um, but I interview uh, innovation thinkers, gurus, consultants, um, executives who have done interesting innovation things. And um, and I continually see this kind of binary view of innovation, that there's doing more of the same, right? An incrementally better version of your current product to your current customers or something revolutionary and disruptive, be it, you know, some kind of blue ocean thing or lean startup or disruptive technology or, you know, some some kind of new and better version of your business, right? So leaving the old behind and venturing out into new territories. And I think that's dangerous. To, if, to see innovation in that binary way is dangerous. And that I think most people in most companies doing most of the innovation are focused on that current product that needs to become more competitive. You know, maybe it's competitively challenged. Maybe it's becoming a commodity, whatever. And what I liked about that Lego and Sherwin-Williams approach was that it was focused on that type of innovation of how do we take our existing product and make it more compelling, make it more valuable uh, for our customers. Now, are there exercises that companies could be doing or should be doing to help them decide if they feel like they need a new strategy, if they feel like they need to start innovating in a particular way, like how to figure out which way to go? Yeah, there's a couple different methodologies that are out there that I think people who read a lot of the innovation literature are probably familiar with the jobs-to-be-done framework. There's a couple different authors of different jobs to be done uh, framework. I haven't seen a lot of difference in them, uh, but Tony Alwick's is the best known, and, and that's a wonderful way. Um, what, he, what he says is, you know, what, what are your customers hiring your product to do? What are they trying to accomplish with your product? Um, but I also think that the, there was a, a Wharton book or a series of books about the uh, consumption chain analysis um, that were done by um, uh, Ian McMillan. Um, and he, uh, uh, he looked at, at the whole process of buying something and using it and maybe uh, finishing that use process and, and disposing of it. And so the, the whole way that money changes hands over the life cycle of a product is it's kind of orthogonal. It's, 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 um, it, it touches some of the same things that Ulwick and that uh, jobs-to-be-done framework touch, but it's a different way of looking at the world. And, and looking at those two things helps you understand the context around your product and find opportunities to do things that will help your customers get more value from the product. Right. And you point out in the book that, I mean, this book is not saying that in using the third way, we have to throw out things like jobs to be done or even disruption, that it's more about finding the right toolkit to use for whatever your problem happens to be or to solve your market issues. Now, are there ways once you start doing this or if you decide that you want to continue on this particular track with the third way to kind of keep your employees on track? Because I could see how it might become easy to want to run towards maybe the disruptive innovation or that blue ocean strategy because it's, you know, it's shiny, it's sexy, it's maybe, you know, it's something, maybe it's a little more exciting, but how do you, so how do you keep people focused on this particular type? Yeah. The the book was a hard one to write because the stuff in the middle is really review and it's the, the material at the beginning and the end that's different. Um, and so, you know, what I lay out in the book is this four-step process. And the first step, what you're asking about is really the step of, you know, who are we 
as a company? What are our crown jewels? What are those things that we did yesterday that we're going to do today and that we're going to do tomorrow? And that, you know, they made our company great that our customers still depend on us for. You know, what's our brick? And some companies have many different bricks, like Lego. Lego is easy. Um, Sherwin-Williams, it was easy. But there's other companies where it's more difficult. Um, But starting small, choosing something important, and then trying to understand what customers are getting from that, what I call the promise, um, is the first step. And and that that is a different step. It's almost where you're not going to innovate, right? What's going to stay the same? And I think that's a much more stable base to build innovation efforts from. And so then, once you've done that, then um, understanding what the value is to the customers, what I call the promise, that's the second step. And then you come to the third step, which is the creative idea generation, which, which there's lots of different ways to do it. And going into some of the uh, prototyping and experimentation to understand whether you have the right ideas, that's all pretty well-trod territory. Um, and I, I put in some things that are unique to this approach to innovation in the book. But then it's, it's the fourth step. Um, and you have to read all the way to chapter seven. I feel like punishing my readers, <laughs> but if you don't get to chapter seven, you don't realize that there's a lot of things that if you're a company that's good at product development, de- developing a better version of your product or service, then you've probably set up roles and responsibilities and structured process, metrics, reward systems that make you very good at that. And that actually prevents this approach to innovation and that you have to change some of that. Otherwise, you're setting your team up for failure. And so that that last part about how you uh, change your organization to give your team the chance to be successful, I think that's what makes this so hard. Because it's not just about deciding we're going to do this, but you also have to sort of organize your company that way. Because that, if it's organized toward disruption, you can't do this. That's right. And, and it's why I suggest starting small, right? I mean, get a team organized around some product, give them the freedom to really think more broadly than just the product or service, but rather give them the, the team and the mandate to start thinking about other, you know, services, partners, um, channels to market, whatever, that will really help your customers get more value from the product. Um, that uh, that's something that can be really difficult to overcome in a company. But if you start small, you can show that it's valuable and then build out from there. Now, you also point out, I think you use Kodak as an example, that this is not the answer for every company or for every problem. So, for example, Kodak probably couldn't have used the third way to survive the advent of digital photography, for example. That's right, yeah. And I don't. I, I think of it as another tool in the tool belt that I didn't see people talking about. You know, there's a lot of talk about the hammer. There's a lot of talk about the screwdriver. But this particular wrench wasn't being talked about, which is why I wrote the book. Now, getting back to Lego for a second, one of the things you talk about in the book is that Lego actually tried first when they had when their fortunes turned and they were thinking of trying to think of a way out of that and back to growth. First, they turned actually to incremental innovation. Then they turned to disruption and then they turned to this, which I thought was interesting because you don't you know, as a consumer, you might not see it that way. But when you actually look very closely at what they did, it's pretty clear. (laughs) Yeah, and I saw that pattern being repeated again and again. I saw it with Apple. I saw it with Gatorade. I saw it. You know, one of the first things that companies tend to do is, um, you know, they've maybe grown because they came out with a great product. And so they they do more of that product and and they expand into new geographies and the company grows and everything's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, that's not enough. You know, that that avenue from growth uh, for growth hits its inevitable end. 
Well, then what ha- often happens, what happened at Lego, Apple, Gatorade, et cetera, is that they keep putting out more versions of the product. I think Jim Collins called this the disease of more. Um, and every new variant that they spin off makes less money but adds just as much cost. And so profits go down, sales don't go up, and the whole thing, if you, if you keep doing that, will result in, in a problem. Well, then what happened at Lego, as also happened at Apple and happened at, at other companies, is, is that they begin to think about, well, how could we reinvent the future? How could we reinvent the future of play for Lego or computing for Apple or whatever? And they come out with all kinds of revolutionary disruptive products. And that's really dangerous. I mean, it's expensive. It's difficult. It fails a lot. Um, it doesn't mean you, ha- you don't want to try. You absolutely want to try. Um, you have to have somebody looking out there to see what's happening with technologies and with competitors and, you know, new low-end, high-tech uh, solutions that could disrupt you without you really paying attention to it. you got to be focused on that. But it's, it's tough to bet the company on it. And it was only when those companies went back to the core product and then started innovating around it that they began to have the success that they had. And Apple was a really interesting case in the book for me because I've, it really made it clear to me that maybe in some cases with Apple that we've learned the wrong lesson when it comes to innovation at Apple because I think a lot of times when people talk about innovation at Apple, what they talk about is disruption. And you argue that it's the third way that actually came first. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I get a lot of heat for that second chapter about Apple because I'm arguing that Steve Jobs was not a disruptor. Um, he was disruptive, but not a disruptor. And that may sound like academic nitpicking, but I, I think it's really important because it says something about where innovation leaders should look for ideas. And so let me, let me go into that in, in a little bit of depth. Um, so Apple, when it came out with the iPod and iTunes in 2001, um, that, of course, made major changes in the music industry. Um, that, uh, of course, in 2003, when they opened up the iTunes store, that, that was a big change. And it opened up, you know, the first major digital market. Um, so if you're a music company or if you're, you know, a company making MP3 players, it feels like a disruption. But the point that I try to make in the chapter is that Steve Jobs was not looking to disrupt. That you got to go back to 2001 um, to see that, you know, Apple was a company that had focused on the PC market and had steadily been losing share. I think they had a peak of about 15% in the mid-90s. They were down at, in single digits. They hit a low of 4% market share. Um, things were really bad at Apple in 2001. Of course, it was the tech crash, right? So right. there was less demand, um, but things were not going well. And so what Steve Jobs was doing with the iPod and iTunes was – he came out, and, and go back, I urge anybody to go back and listen to his Macworld presentation from 2001, where he shows a picture of a Mac in the middle, and he shows around it a VCR and a digital camera and a CD player and a, uh, a Palm Pilot, and he said, your life is becoming digital, and your pictures are digital, your movies are digital, both the ones you watch and the ones you take, the... Um, and your music is digital, your calendar, your, and, and no place is this experience worse than with music. And so we're going to help you manage your digital life. And to start with that, we're going to, you know, and then he introduces the iPod and iTunes. 
And iTunes actually was a product called SoundJam that he'd acquired the year before and, you know, um, improved slightly, but introduced as iTunes. And of course, the iPod was at that time an MP3 player. And Steve Jobs, if you go back and read Walter Isaacson's biography, fought like crazy to um, resisting taking iTunes to the IBM platform, which, of course, it was necessary. I mean, the customers just demanded it, so he had to. But those things were not the purpose of the iPod and iTunes was not to disrupt the music industry. It was to complement the Mac. It was to sell more Macs and to make the Mac more valuable. It was to make it the hub of your digital life. And so, you know, again, they, they if you're in the music industry, those feel very disruptive. But Steve Jobs was not looking to disrupt. He was saying, what is our brick, right? What's that center of who we are? It's the Mac. How can we sell more Macs? Well, by making it more valuable. Well, what do people want? They want to, you know, they want to manage their digital life. And in 2001, that was becoming a real thing. And so let's do that for one area of music, and let's see whether that can't sell some, some more Macs. And so it really was, a, 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 I think, a misunderstood case, that that is not a case of disruption. Um, not from the standpoint of what was going through Steve Jobs' mind in 2001. Now, what do you think is Apple's brick today? Would it be the Mac or the iPhone? Oh, yeah. So I think that's really interesting that um, they followed where their customers led them, you know, and, and so that uh, iPod, of course, became uh, the iPod Touch, and then it became the iPhone in 2007. And then all those things, you know, then, then the App Store opens up in 2008, and there, there is this whole system of complementary innovations around the iPhone. And now, of course, they make a lot more money from the small screen than from the big screen. And so the iPhone, uh, I think, is, has become its own center of, of a system of complementary innovations. And one of those, of course, is the watch. And we'll see whether that watch becomes a third kind of center. It doesn't look like it is. It looks like Apple is not quite able to execute. And, and that may be just a, um, you know, one of the things that Steve Jobs was able to do was that he had that force of personality that demanded that everybody in the company work together to make an insanely great customer experience. Well, as the company has grown and as Steve Jobs has left, um, it may be getting harder within Apple to bring together all the different parts of the company to really make that seamless experience. And, of course, to make it not around one center, you know, but around two or even three if you count the watch. Um, and so I end the book with a, with a, a story of Disney. Um, I was going to bring that up, actually. Yeah, Disney is, is both a, a great example because they were the, one of the first to do this. Back in 1938, they were doing this with the, um, the first animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, they, they also had records so you could sing along. They had bath salts so you could smell like Snow White. They had, they had events at the movie theater. The Mickey Mouse Club at its peak was bigger than the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts combined. Um, and so all those things, you know, made the movie more valuable and the whole experience better. Um, but Disney grew, and especially during the Eisner years, this has been well documented, um, all those different things became their own business units. So there was the theme park business unit, the movie business unit, um, the, uh, the stores business unit, and, um, and, and, um, and the TV shows, and all those things kind of went their own direction. And the one that was let go was, you know, to that that uh, lost, I think, some of its luster was the movies and telling stories 
you know, a lot of the characters and the stories were the things that drew people to Disney World and to the merchandise in the stores and so forth. And and Bob Iger, when he took over for Eisner, realized that. He said, I, I had this um, eye-opening trip in Tokyo where I looked around and all the characters that kids were really excited by and interested in um, were either very old Disney characters like the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy or the new ones from Pixar that, you know, all the other movies that we'd been making, you know, The Princess and the Frog and Bolt. And, you know, there was just a lot of very ho-hum movies that, that Disney put out um, that uh, they'd lost that art. So Iger purchased Disney and, um, and used the management of, of uh, Pixar Sorry, Iger purchased Pixar and used the management of Pixar to help revive the fortunes of Disney animation. And, of course, that led to Frozen and and some of the other great uh, Disney animated features that we've seen and a revival of the whole system of innovations around it. Now, you bring up an interesting point with Disney, which is that, you know, many companies today, I mean, they're not just they're, they're mega companies almost with all of the consolidation going on in various industries that a lot of times now, like these companies have so many different arms and so many different pieces that how do you kind of find those, like, for example, those aha moments like Gatorade realizing that athletes were its core audience or Lego realizing that they should invade around the brick when maybe and maybe your company has, you know, the people that are responsible for one thing are in a completely different office and you never talk to them or you never even you don't even know where their headquarters is because your company is so far flung at this point. Like how can companies deal with that level of complexity when they're trying to focus on this kind of innovation? Yeah, I th- well, I think it, it starts with, you know, that question of what are our crown jewels? And um, Lego asked the question, what would the world miss if we were gone? And what they found was that, you know, people would miss the brick, the plastic brick. And furthermore, if Lego didn't offer a plastic brick, the toys that didn't have bricks in them were the toys that failed, right? I mean, the people, really, if if there was no brick, they had no reason to do business with Lego. They'd rather go to Fisher-Price or Mattel or Hasbro. Um, And so uh, just asking that question of what's our crown jewels, um, and then for each one, what would the world miss if it was gone, and then going out and talking to those customers and, and watching them use the product, watching kids play or watching um, a contractor paint a house. That's what you have to do to understand where might other innovations make that crown jewel more valuable to our customer. David Robertson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can also find Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM Channel 111, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.